the ultimate prioritization system is the what is the biggest threat to our users and to us, right? So, you know, on the sort of hacking front, one of our measures is I kind of have described it as the surprise theory in terms of I, I asked my head analyst, like, you know, if the head of incident response called you up and said that we were hacked, who would you be least surprised it was? And then if you sort of give a list of like who you wouldn't be that surprised if we were hacked and this hasn't happened yet, but if we have that list, like that's probably a good measure of where we want to actually spend a lot of our time looking because that's probably who we assess to be the biggest threat. And that may not be the person with the, the best exploits or the coolest hackers, but who actually is the biggest threat to us and our users is really the measure. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 13th, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Alina Polyakova and I spoke with Shane Huntley, the director of Google's Threat Analysis Group, a team that leads Google's efforts to track threats from nation-states and hacker groups. If you've ever received a notification from Google that a state-sponsored actor is trying to access your email account, you've heard from the Threat Analysis Group. The group examines everything from attempts to steal cryptocurrency to what Google calls coordinated influence campaigns. That is, the sort of information operations we've discussed so much on this podcast. Recently, the Threat Analysis Group has begun putting out blog posts with updates on their work against coordinated influence campaigns. Alina and I asked Shane about his bulletin for the first quarter of 2020. But since we spoke, Google has published another post for the second quarter, detailing actions against campaigns from Iran, Russia, and China. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 13th. Shane Huntley on countering digital threats at Google. Uh, so Shane, thank you so much for joining us. To start off, why don't you just introduce yourself? Like, give us the elevator pitch, sort of who you are and what it is you do at Google. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so my name's Shane Huntley, and I'm the director of Google's Threat Analysis Group. So I kind of joined Google 10 years ago, and before that, I was coming from the sort of intelligence space out of Australia. But I came to Google to help form this team. And this team, Google's Threat Analysis Group, is the threat intelligence part of Google security. So our mission is to understand the targeted and government-backed threats so that we can protect Google and our users from these threats. And, you know, we've just had our 10-year anniversary. We've been doing this a while now. And really, our job is to, you know, provide that understanding to others and to actually stop these threats, which I think is the most important part, you know. My team is, you know, started off with like five people 10 years ago, like locked away in some small little room. But, you know, it's definitely grown as have the threats that we are seeing grown till like almost 40 people today. And on any even given day, we're tracking more than 270 targeted or government-backed attacker groups. And these groups come from more than 50 different countries. We have, you know, a range of people that do this sort of work. We have people like myself that come from like the government background and sort of the deep technical malware and exploit sort of development area. But we also have, you know, software developers that are building the large scale systems. We have people from the security research community that were, you know, finding exploits now and trying to now stop people finding exploits. And as the sort of mission of we have has expanded to sort of not just cover hacking, but also misinformation, disinformation, and also sort of botnets, the sort of people we need has sort of expanded out as well. So, you know, on any given day, like we're looking into like the different aspects to just really 
understand what's going on and to really get to the bottom of like what all these bad actors are doing against us and against the internet. Thanks, Shane. That's really fascinating. I had no idea the team had grown uh, so fast and to such a large number of people. But of course, it makes sense, uh, given the kinds of threats that we've been facing over the years. But I wanted to ask a follow-up question. So it seems like your team now covers uh, very different kinds of threat vectors. Obviously, it's very different when you're looking for potential uh, hacks or phishing attempts versus when you're looking at you know, what you refer to as botnets or disinfo ops or as the preferred term de jour, information influence operations. Maybe can you talk a little bit about how you work to identify these different vectors and how you actually go about figuring out how to do your work? And I guess my question is, um, we don't really see the back end of what you guys do and don't have to, you don't have to reel any so-called classified information here, Google classified information, but curious to better understand, you know, how do you guys decide what you're looking for across these three uh, threat vectors? And then how do you actually go about, you know, doing your work of identifying potential threats? So, you know, we started off very much in sort of the government threat actor space. And the, you know, the goal was to really have a comprehensive understanding of the threats because, if you don't know the threats, you can't defend against them. So on an ongoing basis, like where we differ from a lot of security teams or other teams is that, you know, an abuse team, for instance, maybe just like, you know, building an antivirus system or looking at each message as they come in and looking at the whole volume of activity. Our real focus is on the actors behind it and the whole interconnected nature of the activity and then to keep track of these threat actors and to be able to build out detections to detect more activity by these threat actors. And I suppose the we've built up this expertise and like Google is in a great position to do this for a number of reasons. One is we just have this range of products. So we see, you know, abuse or different aspects of attacks coming in different places. So, you know, a threat actor might be involved in, say, phishing one day, but then maybe trying to do something against Android another day. And some of the interrelations between what's happening across the entire of the platform and even between platforms is the story. And that's where my team differs a bit from the sort of individual security teams, which there are many at Google that are looking at the sort of products and other areas. Um, but you raise a good point of like, you know, they seem like different missions, you know, botnets, disinfo, and you know, APT or government hacking. But really, there's, there's, there is starting to become more of a blurring between these actors as well in that the one, you can't really always determine intent straight away. So sort of centralizing the expertise to investigate and work out what actually is going on makes a lot of sense. And then you can actually work out the different aspects about it. Also, the tooling and systems we built. And as I mentioned, we have a lot of people like building large-scale data pipelines to process data. Because one thing Google has is a lot of computers and a lot of expertise in crunching data. So that's something we apply against the problem as well. And how do we decide what to look at? I think the what is a targeted threat is the kind of the real touchstone. And then within that, we try and prioritize in different ways. And But the ultimate prioritization system is the what is the biggest threat to our users and to us, right? So, you know, on the sort of hacking front, one of our measures is I kind of have described as the surprise theory in terms of, I, I asked my head analyst, like, you know, if the head of incident response called you up and said that we were hacked, who would you be least surprised it was? And then if you sort of 
give a list of like who you wouldn't be that surprised if we were hacked and this hasn't happened yet but if we have that list like that's probably a good measure of where we want to actually spend a lot of our time looking because that's probably who we assess to be the biggest threat and it may not be the person with the the best exploits or the coolest hackers but who actually is the biggest threat to us and our users is really the measure so Shane, what I think really inter- is really interesting about your work, and I think Quinta will have a couple of follow-ups based on what you laid out too. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about like maybe some concrete examples of specific actors that Google has tracked over time. You mentioned that there's at least 270 actors um, that you're tracking over any time period. Um, is there one that you could talk about as an example? Obviously, what comes to mind is... APT 2829. They've been in the media a lot. Uh, We know uh, a little bit, um, well, actually, we know a lot about these particular groups and their involvement, of course, in the 2016 election with the kinds of um, operations they carried out against the, the DNC and the Clinton campaign then. And of course, back in those days, Google was involved in um, making sense of these operations because a lot of these attacks uh, were happening within within the Google platform context because a lot of people use Gmail, obviously, for their email. People get phished all the time in their Gmail. So to the extent that you can, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe a specific actor that you guys have been tracking over time and how you do the work of kind of understanding uh, that this is this actor that you're looking at? How do you attribute, get into a little bit of the nerdy stuff with us if you can? Okay, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Whenever I talk about this publicly, though, I, I always have in the back of my mind that, like, if I talk about a threat actor, I'm guessing everybody in this threat actor is going to be listening to your podcast. So you, you may, depending on the size of the group, you may get a few more listeners out of this. But I have to be very aware that sort of anything I reveal about what I know about them and how I detect them is also something that I'm potentially feeding to the people I'm detecting, I'm trying to detect. So I have to be a little bit general here. One of the groups I think is sort of really interesting to us recently is like and sort of surprised me over the years in terms of how they developed as some of the North Korean stuff in fact and I think the you know people don't think of North Korea as a you know a major technical power but when people when anybody gives a list of sort of the top four threat actors these days North Korea makes the cut along with China Russia Iran and I think one of the interesting developments in how we sort of track them is just how their focus different differs and goes sort of in very many different directions. And I think it's well documented by others that, you know, unlike many of the threat actors, there's actually a financial component to the North Korean actors and their sort of obsession with cryptocurrency and their obsession with, you know, we believe stealing cryptocurrency. So, you know, one of the things we do is we do these state-sponsored warnings. And for those who don't know, understand what that is, like anytime we detect a user targeted by a government-backed actor, we put a warning at the top of their Gmail to sort of let them know that because we believe people should know that they've been targeted. And every month I get a lot of cryptocurrency people hitting me up saying, why did I get this warning? And often I can't give them details, but the, you know, the spoiler out there is that it's North Korea because if you're in cryptocurrency, the North Korean government's probably going to try and steal your Bitcoin in some way by trying to fish you or trying to send you malware or something along those lines. And we've seen this sophistication, right? Like similarly for many other countries as well that, you know, when I first started, there was like a handful of countries that were good at this. Now, like almost every country is 
quite competent this and the, the standards across the board are lifting. So you can't write off any country regardless of their economic situation for how they are as a threat. So Shane, I imagine uh, a fair amount of our listeners may have gotten those warnings on their GMO that they've been targeted by a state actor. Is there any way you could tell us a little bit more about sort of how you make those determinations and how Google thinks about the the value of sending out those warnings? So yeah, I, I came up with this idea back in 2012 and it's sort of been a long running program for us and something that Got a bit of criticism early on, uh, a lot of interest even to this day when people get these warnings. Like some people find it quite exciting, some people find it quite scary. But I, I can give you a little bit of understanding. One, the thought behind it is that it really depends on the user. But for many users, they may not have this awareness they're being targeted by a government. So we may not be able to give all the information and all the details. But sort of my philosophical thought is that. If we know that one of our users is currently being targeted by a government-backed attacker, then that's information that we shouldn't keep to ourselves and that's information that we should share with that user so they can make the right decision on what they need to do. And the right decision, we give some advice about like how to secure your account and all those other sort of technical advice about that aspect. But, you know, this might be a bigger message for them as well, right? So if you're an activist in a certain country and you're specifically being told you're being targeted by a government-backed attacker, that could have implications well beyond just your Gmail account. And we hope that information is useful. We've got a lot of feedback that people have found this information very useful. In terms of like who we warn and what sort of our thresholds are, I think one of the other ways, there's a few people who are sort of like, I won't say copy, but are also now doing sort of government-backed attacker warnings. And I think one area where I think, we're still somewhat unique is we are very, very consistent and have been for years about what our threshold is and what activity we report on. So as I said, my team specifically tracks government-backed attacker groups and threats against users. And it's just a clear thing that every couple of weeks, about once a month, we take every single user that we've seen targeted by a group that we believe to be government-backed and we give them the warning. We don't make decisions of, oh, we're going to do this group this month, we're going to do that group another month, and maybe we'll do this country because we like them or that country because we don't like them. It's all only warn users in this country. No, it's very clear, very straightforward that if we see targeting of a user by one of the groups we believe to be government-backed, then that user gets a warning. And that warning appears across Gmail with the advice, and we take it from there. That's really interesting. So we we want to dig into the specifics of the these bulletins that you're sending out now in your work. Um, but before we do that, I, I did have a follow up question on what you mentioned about the sort of the development of the threat analysis group over time. Um, so you said that you know dis and misinformation. This podcast is sort of nominally about those issues, broadly defined. I think a lot of people when they're thinking about the threats and concerns that big tech companies and platforms have on their plate, dis and misinformation might right now be sort of at the top of the list in the public mind. But you mentioned that that wasn't initially part of your work. I'd be curious if you could talk about sort of when and how that got folded into your work and how you think about it as a part of what you do. So I suppose tag as well as just sort of tracking groups, we've always been this area of Google security that just has this sort of deep expertise of digging into stuff. So, and that's actually one of the reasons we were formed is because like it was formed after, you know, an incident with China in 2009 that they sort of wanted to have sort of us 
available as sort of like emergency call to sort of dig into those sort of out there sort of situations. So it really, we've, you know, been pulled into all sorts of different things that have hit the company in different ways. And part of, you know, when we were going through the whole, you know, threats and cycle of the 2016 election, I think that's when, like for a lot of people, the kind of threats coming to the fore from the Internet Research Agency and other sort of disinformation threats really came. And then when that came forward, like one of the obvious questions is what can we learn about these threats? How deep can we go at? What can we understand about them? And then my team was brought in and we developed that expertise. And as the company has, you know, subsequently and over the years, you know, built up our area of focus in that expertise, the one bit that's sort of clear is like, you know, TAG's pretty good at understanding threat actors. These are, these actors are a threat to Google. You know, it makes sense for TAG to sort of expand in this way and understand more about these threat actors. The other thing that, you know, it's not hasn't happened as much as I feared, but I also think that I wouldn't want to draw some arbitrary dividing line between these sort of attacks as well, that often you're seeing the same states that may be doing disinformation operations are also doing sort of hacking operations. And then there's things that sit in in between, like a a hack and leak operation is sort of a disinformation campaign and a hacking campaign at the same time. So we also don't want arbitrary barriers in terms of understanding the threats from these actors as well. So I, I claim it all fits pretty well in the end, even though, you know, we have some people at the moment who are much more specialized in you know deep malware and phishing stuff where some people are more detailed at digging into disinformation campaigns but it all works pretty well together i find this so interesting shane because i do think there's a tendency in our current policy conversations to really separate information influence operations that are happening in like social media platforms from you know hacking and cyber attacks and i think what you're saying is that these are often very much linked. And not only that, they're being carried out by at least the same countries. Obviously, Russia, case in point, 2016, hack and dump, disinformation campaign, all of that. And in a way, we can't really, even from a threat analysis perspective, separate these kinds of activities from each other because they're all working to mutually reinforce each other in some way um, when they're coming from the same threat actor like Russia or North Korea um, or China or others. Absolutely. And one of my earliest jobs back way back in the day when I was like a sub-lieutenant in the Royal Australian Navy, I was actually, one of my jobs was information operations staff officer. I was actually in the information operations planning part of Australian Strategic Command. And even back then, like, you know, 20 years ago, the doctrine was that like information operations did include computer network exploitation or hacking, but also this sort of like influencing operations and all these things today. So I don't think it's a new theory, actually, that, you know, all of these things are part of the national goals or the sort of the operations to influence and could even be linked to military operations or other aspects here. So it's all interconnected. And yeah, trying to slice this too thinly, I think is a mistake. Yeah. So when you use the term as, as you do in some of the publicly facing stuff that you guys have published on this, um, when you talk about coordinated influence campaigns, it's really the suite of all of these kinds of tactics and strategies that you're referring to there. Is that right? Oh, terminology is hard. Um, I suppose the, you know, the the, the bulletin is more about the influence sort of operations. The hacking ones is related, but generally is also a little bit separate as well, but we believe they're all related. All right, so fair enough. Um, but let's get to the bulletin, which was the um, original reason why we wanted to have this conversation with you because 
back in May of this year, Google and your team, the tag team, put out a new kind of bulletin post that you guys said online that you would be doing this on a regular quarterly basis um, to give updates on coordinate influence campaigns and things of that nature. Um, Everybody could look this up online. You Google it, obviously. But I wanted to go back to the May issue that you guys put out and the update you published related to that to get you to kind of talk through what was in that bulletin, why you guys thought that was necessary to put out when you did. Um, I found one of the cool things about if everybody goes online and looks it up, um, is the map you made about uh, which countries are the primary targets of these kinds of operations. And there were no huge surprises there, but I thought, I thought it was really interesting to see on that global scale based on the huge number of um, campaigns you're following, the number of actors you're following. But walk us through a little bit, you know, what was in that bulletin and, and why was it important to put it out when you did? So I'd say that's very much an expansion of the, you know, the transparency we've had in this place of wanting to talk about attacks. You know, back in 2010, I think we were, you know, the probably the first big company to openly talk about, you know, being tar- targeted, hacked by China, by attackers coming from China. And then, you know, over the years, we've talked about a number of other sort of major campaigns from different countries, in regards to like phishing of activists. And, you know, we've been doing, you know, various posts and information about these state-sponsored warnings as well. I think the we've been sort of evolving over the last sort of probably like six months. Like it's not just this bulletin. There's actually a number of, you know, blog posts and even some presentations from my team on, you know, these government-backed attacks. And I think part of it is that, you know, we want to get the right information out there so people can understand the threats. We want to, um, you know, inject this sort of understanding of what we're seeing, especially in the kind of current climate where there's like often can be speculation, there's a lot of of different voices that we wanted to make sure that at least our voice is also in the mix, giving our perspective on what we're seeing because I think we are, you know, a fairly major player on the internet in some ways. So we, our perspective on this is useful. And also some of the, you know, just to give idea of the scope and some of those numbers we give there, like there's sort of two aspects to it. There's the the map area you talked about where we actually like show the where the users we see targeted by sort of malware and phishing are and the numbers about how many of these state-sponsored warnings we give. And, you know, I think that gives an idea of scope to people. And, you know, if, if anyone does hasn't seen the map, it's, you know, I think we color in pink all the countries where we have targets and there's not a lot of countries that aren't target, are colored in pink in some form in this map. And then we also talk about the takedown aspect as well in the specific bulletin, which is the coordinated information, coordinated influence operation side, where we talk about the takedowns that have happened on various products over the quarter. And, you know, that first one covered the Q1 of 2020. And so I'm, I'm curious to, I want to push you a little more about sort of why now, right? Because um, you've obviously been doing this work at Google um, for a while. Um, there's, when you say, you know, the, the information environment right now, Obviously, the the first bulletin came out in May, so in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. There's quite a lot else going on in the world. So to, to what extent is it the pandemic or other issues that are sort of moving uh, you to produce these bulletins? And I'm just sort of curious what, you know, why now? Well, yeah, I suppose specifically on the sort of 
disinformation side, the the conversation the conversation has really shifted around this too, and there is also more sort of interest from third parties. There's also many great researchers doing research in this space that like are asking for information, and this is one of our key ways that we're trying to provide that information to them. Also, part of it on is part of the expansion is our expansion of this understanding is that. We, we want to share that understanding. And the coordinated influence side is, as I mentioned, the newer part of this for my team. So we have been talking about the phishing and malware aspects for a long time. As we've expanded our understanding of the coordinated influence side, it makes sense for us to expand our coverage of that. So, But you, you, know, you make a point that the, there's also, it wasn't particularly tied to any specific event, if that's what, what you're getting at. No, that's really interesting because obviously... Google's decision and your decision to start publishing this information in the public domain um, obviously also coincides with other companies um, like social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Also doing something similar uh, where we see those companies publishing on a pretty regular basis. Uh, the so-called takedowns they're doing, we've spent a lot of time talking about that in this podcast as well. But I think what's interesting about Google is that, of course, it's a really different kind of company than a straight up social media platform like Facebook or even Twitter. And so the kinds of uh, threats that you guys are tracking tend to be, I would think, pretty different. And the challenges that you face in identifying them also tend to be pretty different. And then, of course, how malicious actors exploit Google for info ops is also different. So given all of that in mind, I think there is a tendency to sort of pull so-called quote-unquote platforms all into the same bucket. But what do you think from your perspective really makes what you're doing seemingly different from what it seems like if you were just a social media platform, uh, what you guys would be doing in terms of tracking these kinds of threat activities? What really distinguishes kind of the work that you feel like you're doing versus what could be the work you would be doing if you were uh, a Facebook-style organization of something of that sort. Yeah, I think that's that's really insightful. And I think I 100% agree that, you know, people sometimes like to, you know, lump all the tech platforms into, you know, they're all the same. And, you know, there's some commonalities between us as like we're big tech companies who are on the internet, but there's like fundamental differences, as you point out, between the platforms. And that means that that's changes our not relationship with our users, but also the relationship with our attackers and abusers that, you know, Gmail and Android and YouTube are not abused in the same way that Twitter is. And even Twitter and Facebook are quite different social networks. And the sort of, even when you've seen the same actor being reported by both of those companies, like how that behavior works and how a campaign would work on those platforms is quite different. So I think one of the things about our bulletin on the coordination influence side is that it's actually a fairly small number of takedowns because, as you point out, we're not primarily a social media company. YouTube isn't really a platform where things go viral from user to user. It's a posting platform. So, you know, the vast majority of my team is actually looking at the time, is looking at the threats for the users because was also pointed out is, is Gmail is a primary communication mechanism. People use Android phones. People use Chrome browsers. Like, there is a lot of our products being used by people that are facing serious threats. 
And that's kind of where our focus goes. So I think that's the kind of insight about where you shift and that different platforms have their different products. And our biggest focus day in, day out is actually phishing and malware. And can even, if you want, I could talk about phishing a bit more because like, I didn't know that much about phishing before I came to Google, but it somewhat became my life after sort of moving here because of, of sort of the threat and how it's done in different ways. Yeah, I'd love to hear more. So phishing for that knows is basically tricking a user to hand over their credentials to log into a system. And, you know, I come from the background. I used to like work in the intelligence area. I used to like write exploits and develop malware sites and, you know, all this super deep computer science stuff. And what it turns out is that when, you know, a foreign government wants to kind of go after a Google user or many other platforms, any platform you log into, still one of the most effective ways instead of having some cool exploit or malware or cyber weapon is to just trick the user for their password. And so there's very many variations of this. Like one of the most common ones is they'll send something that looks like a, you know, a big topic of the day. And we did a blog post recently talking about how with COVID-19, it's become a really good way to trick people because people are really interested in COVID-19. So send some sort of alert or message about something about COVID-19, trick people to log in, send them some fake login page that looks like something else and then get their credentials and log in. So we do a lot of effort to defend against this, whether it's blocking the phishing message. We have safe browsing, which is a large program in Google security to like find phishing websites and block them. There's account protections to stop attackers logging in. But in the end, it's kind of tough because like how I know that you are you when you come to log into Gmail is you give me your username and your password. And I'm sure... You all and everyone listening on this is great and they never reuse their passwords and they always have strong passwords and all those things, but many users use the same web password in many different places, so we have that threat. Or even really smart users can be tricked for their password and they come to us. So that's why we develop all these other programs such as two-factor authentication, security keys, different mechanisms so it's not just the password to log into the account. And these things make a really big difference to stopping these users. And as you saw going back, like even some of the most consequential hacks that have happened, including like including the, you know, Twitter have just come out that the security incident they had in recent weeks was actually due to phishing, is kind of coming from this like core principle of trying to trick users for passwords and working out what protections we can get around it. Yeah. So one of the interesting things in your blog post announcing your the new bulletins is you write that um, in addition to our internal investigations, we work with law enforcement industry partners and third parties like specialized security forums to assess and share intelligence. Um, so I'd love to hear more about that, um, both your relationship with the others in the industries and with, and with law enforcement. Like, How do you decide which governments to work with and what is the nature of the information sharing that goes on? Sure. So- you know, I think this is all really a team sport and the, you know, understanding that we all can get about these threat actors is better when we can actually share the information between the sort of the good actors trying to defend. So we have, you know, visibility and understanding from our perspective and our strengths of, say, analysing their malware, but you know, law enforcement will have a different point of view and say Facebook or Twitter or any other tech company may have their own individual views. The, you know, I think the good news is that, you know, there really is a kind of common understanding, common working together through this community to actually take on threat actors. 
So this doesn't really feel like an area where we're sort of like competing and trying to outdo each other, but an area where we have a common threat and are working closely together and trying to share our information wherever we can. And I think those sort of partnerships built up are like critically important, especially when it comes to the most critical threats like election security and other aspects that we don't want to sort of sit on information that could help others, but to really sort of foster that sharing to best allow defences by everyone. With regards to the uh, sort of government areas, like my take is like I'm an intelligence service, so I'm more than happy to take information from anyone that can provide us assistance and information about threats that we can use. So, of course, we talk to law enforcement. Of course, we talk to the government. We certainly encourage the and are happy that when the US government or any government is able to give us information to protect our users, we'd love that. We'd love it if they were able to give us more of that information and get some of it out of their classified silos and get it to us to like allow us to take actions. I don't know what's in their classified silos. But we are our own entity as well. And you know, we're very, you know, cautious about how we maintain all our relationships. We're very cautious about our use of privacy and very, you know careful not to share private data in a way that's sort of against any of our principles. Thanks, Shane. So I have kind of two random questions, if you allow it. And you can feel free to uh, not answer these. But um, you did mention uh, at the beginning of our conversation that you you have this kind of usual suspects list, um, either in your minds or on paper. Who's on that list? (laughs) And does that tend to conform to the reality that you find uh, when you're tracking uh, state actor malicious activities? Yeah, I, I think and I've heard, you know, number of people say this both in government and threat, threat companies and other players that, you know, the kind of almost universally considered top four with regards to threats would be, at least coming towards the West, would be, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And I'd say that it conforms in the fact that those four countries certainly all have serious capabilities that we would consider to be serious threats. But as I also pointed out earlier, that we don't limit ourselves to threats that come from those countries. And, you know, we track groups from 50 different countries. And I should talk about, like, when we talk about a group, we're talking about about sort of like some cohesive entity that is undertaking you know, attacks. And these range in like, in some cases, the smallest ones might be like two college age students that are sort of operating on behalf of the government out of some like small university, but are state sponsored all the way up to say a sort of like major unit within like a military intelligence organization. So all of those are kind of considered groups, but we sort of see those groups from 50 different countries, but that's our top four. And you know, I'm just curious, as we are going forward in time, um, do you see significant differences in terms of the targeting tactics um, between these top four countries? Or what can you tell to the extent that you can tell about kind of the strategies behind uh, what the targets are? Because, you know, for those of us working more on the policy side, we just kind of see the strategic piece. We see the after effects, you know, the Russian attack on the U.S. elections and other elections. We see Chinese uh, hack operations on U.S. government agencies. And we try to kind of figure out, you know, what is the strategic intent there. But on your end, you're seeing just such a huge wealth of information on the back end of all this. 
And so what can you tell from all the information that you see about where you think the interests are of these different states in terms of their kind of strategic targeting of specific either countries or institutions? Is there a lot of difference, for example, between what the Russians and the Chinese are doing? Yeah, I'd say yeah, there's, there's a couple of different parts to this. Like, firstly, like one of the ways you can sort of tell a government attacker is by what they're looking at, right, and who they're actually targeting. And when you do have some of the advantage of like the broader the understanding you get of what a particular group is targeting, the more you can sort of understand what their goals are, but you can also start to have some pretty good guesses about like who's behind a particular activity as well. And it's just, it's one of the hardest, hardest ways I think for an attacker to avoid attribution actually is that the sort of like what you're going after really does give a bit away about what someone's doing. And, you know, what we see from the different groups is that different groups out of different countries have different goals and they fall into like sort of a couple of sort of big buckets. So, one of the, like, the more traditional one that everybody openly does pretty much and will even like put the job ads up for it in the Western world is, you know, traditional espionage that, you know, state on state espionage to meet the intelligence requirements of their government. And this is probably in some ways the least controversial that, you know, countries have been spying on each other forever and now everyone's using computers, they're spying on each other using computers. We see other goals as well here, though. Like, so some nations, uh, you know, have been, you know, have had indictments out against them very clearly with regards to intellectual property theft, for instance, and have used their state operations to undertake intellectual property theft. Another sort of growing area we see sort of sadly is the sort of state against individual. And by that, we mean the targeted at-risk individual. They may be a protester. They may be an activist. They may be an expat. They may be saying something about a particular country and that country wants to get information about them for some particular reason or to like target them in some way. So we've often seen that against sort of like minority groups in different countries. We see that sort of targeting and that's sort of a common theme. And how it works often is that, you know, different groups will focus on different aspects that, you know, you may have the same country, may have one group that really just goes after dissidents and activists, one group that goes after sort of, you know, the US government, one group that goes after sort of intellectual property, one group that goes after sort of, you know, wider diplomatic issues. And between countries, I think how much they focus on one thing versus the other varies considerably. And as I think I already mentioned the outlier of the North Korea also have that sort of extra arm of actually trying to make money by stealing Bitcoin a lot of the time as well. So one of the things I found really interesting about the bulletin was uh, some of the commonalities, actually, since we just went through some of the distinctions between different threat actors. And there's so much there to, to talk about. But the thing that jumped out at me is that all of the coordinated influence campaigns that you identify uh, involved YouTube. Um, and some of them involved, you know, like there's one that has uh, 82 YouTube channels. So YouTube seems to be a pretty big element of these campaigns. So I'm just curious, like, to what extent is this when, when you're looking at coordinated influence campaigns, is it a, a YouTube problem with some other Google services on the top? Um, and to what extent is it, do you see it as kind of all different services and, you know, maybe this batch just happened to involve a lot of YouTube? 
So I think, you know, the, the, the specific bulletin is about the sort of influence operations aspect, which is more about the posting of sort of user-facing content. And YouTube is our primary user-facing content platform. We do have other ones such as like, you know, sites and blog or others, but YouTube is by far our most successful product in sort of the user-facing content space. The bulletin doesn't cover all the hacking, the phishing, the malware, all those other aspects. So that's probably why you're seeing the sort of sort of emphasis on that product is because in that space it is, but in the broader space of what we look at in tag, then other products are much more dominant. And, you know, we've published before on how we've blocked attacks from malware on Android. We've published about Chrome vulnerabilities. We've also found vulnerabilities in many sort of other companies' products as well, which we've got fixed. So it really is the whole gamut of sort of products and mechanisms that we see state-sponsored actors using. Sure, absolutely. So we're obviously heading into a busy season, uh, at least certainly in the United States with the election going on. As we've discussed, the pandemic has also really shaped the threat environment. So what plans do you have in the near future around um, the 2020 election? Like what what are you looking out for that might happen? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I am aware there's an election happening this year. It has been consuming a significant amount of my waking moments and also times where I should be asleep but are waking. We have a lot of efforts across Google more than ever before with regards to like election protections. And we've, you know, published about this. For my team, you know, a lot of this is, you know, our day-to-day job anyway, in terms of like our job is understanding all these serious threat actors and, you know, preventing them. So we're keeping an extra close eye on anyone that any actor that we assess could have any probability of targeting the election. We did publish that we saw the Biden and Trump campaigns targeted by China and Iran, respectively, last month. And, you know, our main strategy here is to, one, build whatever protections we can, increase anything we have seen in the past, anything we think we can do to increase security here for any user related to the election is something that sort of is top priority for us. We keep an eye on anything that could be a threat vector. And also we build these partnerships as well to make sure that we have the lines of communication. We are you know, using whatever source we can to get whatever information we can about what threats are out there. But that's the sort of very much the one of the main focuses of our team this year is to make sure that the threat actors are at least through us are not able to do anything to undermine these elections. So Shane, just uh, looking to uh, wrap us up a little bit here, really enjoyed the conversation. And I thought it was just appropriate to end it with a kind of ridiculous question for me, which was, I've always been curious about how some of these groups are named. And in your last bulletin, you mentioned Charming Kitten. Obviously, we've also had Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear and many other names of that nature. How do these names come about and do they tend to mean something to the threat intel slash cyber community uh, besides just cute animal names? Sure. This is a... Man, we could do a whole... Could do a whole series of podcasts on this, actually. It's, it's a sore point around so many people. So it's kind of nuts that every threat group has their own names for everything. So we actually internally name all these groups something else. 
to, and we kind of convert to other people's names for the blog post just because we didn't want to be the people that produced the 10th set of names all for the same actor. And as you point out, right, APT28 is also called Fancy Bear, which is called something else. So the kind of bears and pandas and kittens, that's all comes from CrowdStrike. They're also quite a good threat research company and they use that naming scheme. And I think, you know, kitten is what they give all the Iranian groups and pandas, all the groups they think is China. I think another threat intel firm just names them APT1 through I think 41, 42 these days. We name ours after geographic features like, and then other threat groups just like to, you know, nerds like to name stuff. So they kind of try and come up with some cool name that they can put on a blog somewhere. So there's all these sort of spreadsheets and conversion stones and Rosetta stones to try and map which name from this people means this name here. And then there's constant arguments as well. Like I think one of the more interesting things is that we don't really can ever fully understand the nature of who these groups are. Like in reality, they actually represent some organization in some org chart, maybe in some government overseas. And, you know, I don't necessarily agree with CrowdStrike exactly where the boundaries of this group end and another one start. They may think that what we think is one group is two groups. They may think what two is one. But if you think about it really, like we're actually trying to understand someone's org chart and they're probably going through like every bureaucracy about five reorgs every like couple of years every as well. So we don't really know, but it's just kind of fun to name things. All right. On that uh, whimsical note, uh, Shane, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. It's been fun. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.